0: So um, we are back to revive, if you remember, what was kind of a three-week mini-series on the Gospel of John. And at this point, I'd like to refer you to the first page of um, a sheet that starts with page number four. So you have a translation, page one, notes on the translation, pages two and three, and then an outline of my sermon on page four. And I want to begin by reminding us of our three-week Lenten mini-series from John. We have to remember that uh, we have been stepping out of Matthew. We stepped out of Matthew to begin the series on the third week of Lent, three weeks ago. And we considered John chapter 11, where Mary and Martha were deeply disappointed in Jesus for his delay in coming to attend to the sickness and subsequent death of Lazarus. And because it was Lent, it seemed important and worthwhile to examine the emotional state of jesus and we saw jesus weep for lazarus martha and mary we saw a sullen jesus and we saw his sensitivity to the women and it created a sober tone for us to begin or at least continue in our lenten series and so today i want to continue that series again diverting from matthew for now And we are going to look at John chapter 12, which Cody just read for us. And here, Jesus processes into the city. And then next Sunday, God willing, we're going to look at the resurrection story again from John, the resurrection of Jesus. But because Lazarus has been a unifying theme in these three weeks, we're going to also look at John chapter 12, verses 38 to 44, where Jesus raised Lazarus. One of the unifying themes of the three-week series is Lazarus. And as I was preparing this week, it occurred to me that the last two words, the last two letters in the words Lazarus, tie in with what I want to say over the three weeks, namely us. I think Lazarus in many ways is a picture of us and for us. Lazarus was a disciple. And although we only know of Lazarus from John chapter 11 and 12, and one parable in Luke where the name is used, we don't know whether it was the same Lazarus or not. We get a small glimpse of Lazarus, and we see him at work in John chapter 11 and 12. So get ready, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask for your involvement. Before you look further at the outline, I just kind of want to prime the pump, or ask you to prime your own pump. By just taking a few minutes with uh, one or two other people and based on what you know about lazarus try to identify the things that um you think or that you think i might think are uh, similar between us and lazarus what do we have in common with lazarus and what example can we take from the life of lazarus remain with where you are just turn your head to the left or across the table and um, chew the fat a little bit about Lazarus as a model for us. Okay, if you get too far down the road, you're not going to need me to preach, so I'm going to cut you off. <laughs> you keeners there are maybe getting the ball and running too far down the road with it. On the other hand, uh, it's not necessarily all that obvious And that was actually one of my reasons because I preached from uh, the Matthew text on Palm Sunday or the Matthew Palm Sunday text about a month ago. And so um, I want to uh, take a look at the same text in John from a slightly different angle. So Lazarus and Jesus, a three-week Lenten series. I want to turn your attention next to the Gospel of John, and there's an outline of that on page five. And we're just going to very quickly refresh and orient ourselves to the Gospel of John because we've been in Matthew for a long time and uh, John only once in the past several months. John's gospel is lovely for giving us the purpose of the gospel. I wish every biblical book did the same. But in some cases, I think the spirit wants us to ponder and think and prod ourselves. In the footnote at the bottom of page 5, it says, this is the John's purpose at the end of John chapter 20, these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. There's a variant translation um, in the manuscripts that might imply that John actually knows that we're believers and that he wrote the book so that we might continue to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. Friends, if you're new or old to us, you're new or old to the gospel, you're new or old to the faith, never forget that faith, personal faith in Jesus Christ, is ground floor. Ask yourself, am I relying upon my own goodness or anything else in order to please God? And if you are, I think you probably haven't properly understood faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ that brings you into eternal life. And that is the purpose of John's gospel. And John tells us that that Jesus in whom we are to believe is the agent of God. No one could have done the things that Jesus did were he not God. And that's exactly what Jesus claims he did. So on page five, I've given us a uh, a a small print version. Uh, It's an outline of uh, the gospel of John which is a little bit different than, uh, than, than others. I don't see seven signs. I see uh, six cases where Jesus brings the future eternal life, six cases where he's the embodiment of the future ideal life. But look in large print in the middle of page five, and you'll see that there's a transitional center of the gospel, and that's chapters 11 and 12. It's at the logical and thematic center of the gospel. And it's a point where we are kind of um, turning from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry, from where he's being open to everyone to where he's going to tell secrets to his disciples. And Lazarus steps into the scene, and Lazarus becomes an example for us, and I want to elaborate on that a little bit more. But let me uh, begin by reviewing what we did three weeks ago. And it's back on page uh, four in your outline. In chapter 11, three weeks ago, we learned, and these are the asterisk points on page four, and I'll go through them quite quickly. We learned that disappointment with God, not least in relation to the hard knocks that we face in life, the things that we don't understand, the things that would have been so simple if God had intervened, is a part of life. Martha and Mary, as you remember, in chapter 11, sent a quick note to Jesus. Uh, Our brother, your beloved friend, is sick. Come quickly. And it says, it's bizarre. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he decided to remain for another two days. Mary and Martha don't understand. We don't understand. But that's what Jesus did. Disappointment with God, not least in relation to hard knocks that come our way, that God, so we understand, could have intervened and solved is a part of life. The news gets better. Asterisk number two, hard knocks notwithstanding, still on page four, God works redemptively through them. I have no idea why the things that are hard for you happened I have no idea in many cases why hard things happen to me. Why do good people, as good as we can be, suffer? But we see in John chapter 11 that there is a purpose. So hard knocks notwithstanding, God works redemptively through them. Jesus said in uh, chapter 11 that actually it's, it's, it's okay that Lazarus is going to die... Because God is going to get glory for this. And Jesus, me, I am going to get glory from it. 11, chapter 4, chapter 11, verse 4. In chapter 11, verses 45, we learn that it's going to be a way by which others come to faith. I wonder if you've ever been to a funeral of a Christian where those who are remaining, it's a prayer that they have that during the course of the funeral, in the midst of the preaching of the gospel, that someone might come to faith through coming to that funeral and that that funeral might be the means by which someone comes to new life. What they're looking for and what they're praying for is what we receive assurance of in this case, that often God brings people to faith in times of hard knocks, as it were. We read, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. And then we can also see a purpose in uh, lazarus's death by setting the stage for the next phase of god's plan and in this case it was a jesus's atoning death back in chapter 11 verse 45 you remember uh the crowd sees that lazarus has been raised from the dead and they think what are we going to do i mean look at the miracles this man is performing if we don't do something the romans are going to come and shut us all down and caiaphas comes up with this kind of a plan he's the high priest and he just kind of says on a whim as it were Well, you know, it would be better if uh, one man die than the whole nation suffer ruin. And then John tells us that in the midst of saying that evil thing, that he was actually prophesying something good. And he was prophesying about God's plan for salvation. So in a wonderful way, we saw last uh, week that even in the midst of hard knocks in life, that God is able to bring good things from it. As we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But what I found most assuring last week or two weeks ago or three weeks ago was that Jesus cares at the level of human emotions. I mean, it's one thing to know that is a purpose, but it's another thing to see God become a human and for God to look Mary and Martha in the face. And in effect, say, this is really the pits. And then to burst into tears and get angry and frustrated. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, that really speaks, I think, to more people than the intellectual one. When Jesus expresses the kind of human emotions and expresses empathy for us. Sue Johnson, who has been called... um, the world's most effective marriage counselor. And that sounds like a crazy claim, but actually there's some, some basis for it. She follows the theory of a psychiatrist named John Bowlby, who says that the heart of human love and the heart of human attraction and what people are looking for is the answer to this question. When I need you, will you be there for me? And Sue Johnson has built a whole counseling ministry based upon the idea that you need to give your partner, your loved one, assurance that you will be there for them when they need you. That was, I think, at the heart of what Mary and Martha's disappointment was. Jesus wasn't able to be there for him, for them. But he did the next best thing by crying and expressing frustration. He showed them that he really did love them after all. Now, why am I going on like this when we're talking about the second in the series? Well, it's because at the beginning of chapter 12, we get the end of the story, as it were. We've set a backdrop of disappointment that Jesus addressed by weeping. We learn that in the midst of hard knocks, God does care. But then in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we read, Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. This is the first time in two chapters that Jesus has finally arrived in Bethany. Before in chapter 11, so far as we can tell, Jesus came close. But you remember Mary had to come out to him with great reluctance. Martha came first. Then he went to the tomb. So it doesn't seem as though Jesus ever really made it into the house of Bethany. But in chapter 12, we have what I would suggest, and here I am in point number one on the outline in page page four, is testimony of what happens when Jesus finally comes to Bethany. Bethany, by the way, means house of affliction. When Jesus finally comes and arrives at the house of affliction, the place of hard knocks, look what happens at the end. And to me, this is a a historical account of the present to be sure, but it's also a foretaste of the future. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came home to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. This looks forward, in my mind, to the time of the resurrection, to the time of what we call the eschaton. And we read, therefore, they, that is Martha and Mary, they made supper for him there. What a contrast with chapter 11. In chapter 11, both of them said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Those are harsh words. I believe those are words of anger and deep frustration. You don't see them anywhere else in the gospel. But now they made suffer for him because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and Jesus had come home to the house of affliction. We read a picture of heaven. Martha is serving. Lazarus was one of those who was reclining at the table with Jesus. My friends, there's a lot of hard knocks in life. I don't need to tell you this. I mean, you know it. You live it. You live it sometimes more than you ever want to. But there will be a day in the future when everything will be made well. Those grievances that you have against Jesus will be part of the past. You'll want to make supper for him. Martha serves him. Lazarus is there, alive. A few days ago, he was stinking, but now he's alive at the dinner table. They make supper for him, and then look what Mary does. Mary, who was probably the most annoyed at Jesus of all, takes a pound of extremely costly perfume of pure nard. I'm reading verse 3. Wiped his feet with her hair, And the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume this is a sensual picture of all things being made well when you uh sell a house they tell you that you should put cinnamon buns in the oven so that they smell bread when they come in there's something very uh cathartic about just smelling an aroma the whole house It's filled with the fragrance of this ointment that cost 11 months' wages. Add up your own 11 months' wages. It's going to be a difference between some of us and others of us, I know, but 11 months, even for the least of us, is quite a lot of money. That's what Mary spent on Jesus. My friends, our future destiny is prefigured here. And the time of anguish, the time of hard knocks is over. Verse 3 as well points to the time when Jesus is honored. Mary could have sold this, as Judas Iscariot points out, for an absolute fortune. And she pours the ointment on him. She soaks him with it, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. A follower of Jesus, a Christian on Palm Sunday, even before we get to the triumphal entry story, is interested in honoring and lauding lavishing Jesus with honor because he's deeply worth it. This man is about to die for your sins. He knows it's coming. He didn't deserve it. He chose to do it. And Mary did something gracious and honorific. There's a case where we don't follow Lazarus, but we follow the example of Mary. It's really kind of a whole team effort. Lazarus, Mary, And Martha. Well, that's a glimpse of the future. Now we look in verses 4 to 6, and we realize that evil persists. We're brought back into the present, and along comes Judas Iscariot, and he interprets what was a beautiful thing as something annoying, something that was a waste. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to hand him over, says, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Well, that sounds pretty self righteous. You know, it's a good question. But John wants us to know that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as holder of the money box, he regularly pilfered the deposits. There's a taste of hypocrisy. What a contrast. In one case, it's honoring Jesus. And in the other case, it's a hypocritical response that wants to criticize what's being lavished upon Jesus. Then, friends, if Jesus appeared harsh to Mary and Martha before, and that he did by not coming, chapter 11 makes no bones about that. Look to the way Jesus defends Martha here. Jesus said to Judas Iscariot, leave her alone. He kept this perfume. Interestingly, when you come to the resurrection story, it was Nicodemus who came with spices uh, to prepare the tomb. It was as though um, Mary had spent her wad in advance and that was okay. Jesus defends, and then look at point number E on page, five, page 4, the rejuvenated Lazarus, verse 9, is doing something that I think we can take example from. Now, Lazarus was raised from the dead, and I'm comparing Lazarus's resurrection to our regeneration, which may be a bit of a stretch, but I think the point is valid. The rejuvenated Lazarus is crowd-marketing testimony to Jesus as well as a target with him. Let's look at that crowd marketing testimony in verse nine first. The massive crowd of the Jews, upon learning that he is there, came, and not on account of Jesus alone, but also that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You see this rejuvenated individual. If it weren't for God, I'd still be back in the tomb. Four days ago, I was pretty smelly, and it wasn't pretty. Now I'm alive. I'm refreshed. Who can do that? Who can regenerate a human being other than God? So here, Lazarus is a living testimony to the power and the truth and the reality of God. And as we'll see later in the passage, this is returned to after the story of the triumphal entry. And I want to suggest that one of the ways in which we might want to emulate Lazarus is being a crowd marketer for Lazarus. Crowd marketing has actually become a term on the internet and within age, they're now crowd marketers. You can Google crowdboostmarketing.com, a full service digital marketing agency. And what they promise is website services, social media posting and reels, marketing strategy, content marketing, marketing, email marketing, Social influencer marketing, branding and rebranding, search engine marketing, promotion and events marketing, photography and graphic design. Sign up for tips and advice from marketing experts on how to be a crowd booster. Well, my friends, Lazarus is ahead of the time and all he had to do was get resurrected. I mean, he didn't do anything. God did it all. But now Lazarus is wandering around and people are looking at him and the crowds are boosting because of what God did, what Jesus did in his life. We're not resurrected yet, but many many of us have a strong testimony of our lives having been changed by Jesus. And uh, you might draw the attention of some of your friends. There's something different about you. And I hope you're like Lazarus and you don't say, well, yes, I'm a pretty special person. Thank you. No, what you do is you say, Jesus changed my life. You should really check him out. Now, the Jews started following Jesus as a result of this. And they first started following Jesus as a result of Lazarus. And as an example of crowd marketing, and as an example of what you and I can do by virtue of what Jesus has done in our lives, in crowd marketing, I want you to listen to a testimony. By a woman named dr lori baron who gave a talk at wickliffe college just three nights ago lori baron is uh, a jew a jewess and she has become a new testament scholar and she tells her story and now she is uh going around and telling other jewish people about the jesus who changed her life um, if you are with us uh Evan and Joe, give us the audio of that. It's about three and a half, four minutes long. It takes a little bit of time to orient it, but it's, it's 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 our testimonial during evening prayer tonight, and it also ties into the sermon. So if you can get it rigged and rolling, that'd be great. Do you want to take a minute, Joseph? You can let me know. Let me know when it's ready to cue, and I will. Um, I'll go on to the triumphal entry. Okay, just stick just stick up your hand or yell. Thank you. One of the other things that you learn about Lazarus, and that you learn about being a follower of Jesus, as a crowd gatherer and a spectacle, a rejuvenated spectacle, is you become a target. We read in verse 10, so the chief priests made plans also to kill Lazarus. Lazarus became a wanted man. Some people speculate that the only reason why we learn about Lazarus in the Gospel of John is because Lazarus was in hiding. And that when Matthew, when Mark was written, which was probably the earliest gospel, none of the disciples wanted to say anything about Lazarus because the guy was in hiding. And John, which probably dates just before about 100 AD, might have been at a time when Lazarus was finally safe. My friends, to be a follower of Jesus, as we know from reading the New Testament, is to set yourself up as a target. Jesus tells his disciples that if, they want, if, they, if his enemies want to kill him, they will also want to kill us. Following Jesus involves suffering and being a target. It comes with the territory. But we're dead men one women walking anyway. We have died with Christ. Our life is tied up with Christ. We have been resurrected with Christ, as we learn from Paul. So we're dead men and women walking in a sense anyway. And here we return to the theme of crowd, walking or crowd marketing in verse 11, for account on account of him, that is Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. May I ask you a question as I asked it of me? How many people on account of me are going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him? On account of you, how many of the Jews and others are going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him? Well, now we come to the story of the triumphal entry, and the crowd, as we know, has been boosted by the work of Lazarus and the testimony of the crowd that saw him raised from the dead. So we read in verse 12, on the morrow, the massive crowd that came to the festival, upon hearing that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and were shouting, and this is the phrase that I want to look at us look at for just a minute, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that is, the King of Israel. This passage comes from Psalm 118, which we read, and are we ready? You good? Okay, okay. good. Okay, let's go back and hear from Dr. Lori Barron. Flashback.
1: I not understand it anymore that these kept coming and talking to me about Jesus, and they were so nice. So I decided to read the New Testament for myself to see what was actually in it. And I was fairly sure it would be boring at best and anti-Semitic at worst. It would just take a couple minutes for me to figure this out. So before opening the book, I prayed something like, god please forgive me for reading the new testament um but please show me the truth about it show me the truth you know i don't know the truth i realize i don't i'm not sure if there is a truth out there that can be knowable but if there is and if jesus has something to do with it show me and i'll believe it and this began a wrestling match between me and the pocket-sized new testament that the other person had given me that little book was full of surprises uh there was a lot about jewish law moses I'm searching and looking at the titles of the books there's a book called corinthians what's a corinthian uh there were debates about circumcision what is all this jewish stuff doing in the christian bible i wondered how do non-jews even understand this at first i was drawn more to paul's writings than to the gospels the gospels were stories that could have been made up for all i knew but paul was presenting arguments i couldn't always understand paul's arguments I still can't, but I knew they were important. I'd had stretches in my life when I kept the Jewish dietary laws and I observed Jewish holy days and there were also times when I ignored them. Paul seemed to think that these things mattered. Then I would come across something that sounded hateful to Jews and I would close the book, for example. Uh, the Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They displeased God. They have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has overtaken them at last. Yeah, that's in the New Testament. In case it doesn't sound familiar, it's First Thessalonians chapter two. Nope, had to draw the line, close the book, the end. But then the next day I was just drawn to open it again. And then I would read something like, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision much in every way? Hmm, what does that mean? And I'd get drawn back in. I felt the words leap off the page as if they were alive. God was speaking to me, it seemed, through this little pocket New Testament. I was overcome with a sense of awe. Is it possible that I had been wrong about Jesus, that we had been wrong about him? that sacrificial death for sin was the thing that would connect me to the God of Israel in a way I've been longing for. Is it possible? I wanted that connection badly, but I didn't want it in a way that would violate my Jewish identity. Was following Jesus worth the problems that would surely arise between me and my family and the broader Jewish community? I knew, I knew what was in store for me. After much reading and prayer and conversation, I decided that if Jesus was the Messiah, then believing in him was the most Jewish thing that I could do. And I felt that connection. Honestly, I felt it kind of immediately. I felt different. I felt something that I didn't expect. I felt a sense of joy. I felt a sense of peace. I felt a sense of presence in my life that I had been longing for. And then my life started to change very, very fast. Uh, I helped start a, messianic, a group of Messianic Jews and Gentile allies in Austin. A year or so later, I got involved in Jewish missions. After several twists
0: and turns. Okay. Thanks you guys for hanging in. Thanks everyone for hanging in. So Lori Barron is a living testimony of uh, someone who uh, is a Jew who looked at the claims of Jesus and whose life was changed. And as a result, as you heard at the very end, uh, she is involved in Jewish missions to this day, and uh, her enthusiasm is uh, quite contagious. We're going to look carefully, and we're going to look quickly at uh, the story of the triumphal entry in that, in that statement, and then uh, I realize that time is passing, so I'll do this quickly. Hosanna means help, please. And then it says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the King of Israel. If you look at the context of Psalm 118, and it's outlined on, uh, on uh, page 7 of your, passage, of your outline under um, the relevant passages, you'll see that under, under B, Psalm 118, 10 to 12, the expression in the name of the Lord actually is very militaristic in Psalm 118. It says in verse 10, all the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. It's quite likely that the Jews were expecting Jesus to come and overthrow the Romans. And in light of that statement, as true as it is, and as relevant as it is, because it is in fact preceded by a a prediction of Jesus being rejected, as we see on page seven in uh, item three, looking at verses 22 to 25, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, Jesus wants to temper the militaristic tone. And so he sits on a donkey. In fulfillment of what it says in Zechariah chapter 9, which talks about a king coming on a lowly mount. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Look, your king comes sitting on the colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 9 says, as I indicate on page 7. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then it continues I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to others. Jesus' mission is that of a humble servant. And he rides on a donkey which is unmistakably Jewish, and unmistakably, it's unmistakably Jewish royal, because other figures did it. But it indicates a level of humility, and it indicates what Jesus' mission was. A donkey is a beast of burden. Two weeks ago in West Africa, amidst all of the traffic, you'd find somebody who had a donkey, and on that donkey would inevitably be uh, a huge load of firewood, or it would be pulling a cart. Donkeys are just beasts of burden. What did Jesus come to bear? He came to bear your sin and mine. And he took it all the way to the cross, and he did it in lowliness and humility for you and me. The triumphal entry is a story of people who did in a different way what Mary did when she anointed him. They got palm branches, and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This day, my friend... We have been gathered by a crowd of people who have gone before. We are rejuvenated in a way as Lazarus was. And we want to say above all, all glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King. Jesus has come as the humble servant to take away our sins. Praise be to him. And then verses um, 16 to 19, as we close quickly, Uh, John does a diversion, and he reflects on this revelation of Jesus that we have just witnessed, the triumphal entry story. And he indicates that the disciples at first didn't understand this. And I see this as testimony to our own ignorance as followers of Jesus. But in hindsight, after Jesus was glorified, that is, after he was crucified, after he was resurrected, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So I want to suggest that we can take example from the disciples, mere humans, by reflecting, studying, and depending upon the Spirit of God to indicate to us the truth of the gospel. Jesus does this at the end of Luke. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. It is by the Spirit of God that we come to understand the gospel. And it's my prayer this afternoon that through the proclamation of the word and the proclamation of the word alone, that the Spirit of God is speaking to you. And reminding you and telling you that your Savior has come, and that he has come to bear your sins, and that he's worthy of your worship. And if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. Item three, number B, we return to the issue of Lazarus. The crowd, therefore, I'm reading verse 17 who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. You see, Lazarus was a crowd booster. And then the crowd, as it watches Lazarus and as it sees Lazarus, becomes a crowd booster. And the thing grows and it grows and it grows to the point where within a few hundred years, the gospel is spread all over the known world. My friends, we have the privilege of being crowd boosters. You're a rejuvenated person if you put your faith in Jesus. And it's our privilege to share that news with others. And in my experience, just in the past few years, I don't know about yours, but people seem more open to the gospel than ever before. Just this afternoon in the midst of setting up amongst the film crew, um, they saw my caller somebody who wanted me to to interpret what it was said on on the wall of the Leonard Library. Another person gave their testimony. Another person wanted to talk about theology and philosophy. I mean, it just seems as though the spirit of God is really open nowadays. And we need to be up to speed with this. We've got good news. People are open. Catch the spirit, spread the news, let the crowd go. And then in in the last thing, and with this, I'll shut up and sit down. We read in verse 19, because I come to the end of the passage, and it's not about me, it's about the passage. Therefore, the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Here's another throwaway line that's a little bit like the one of Caiaphas in chapter 11, where somebody just has a throwaway line. You know, I'm frustrated. The whole world is going after him. And the Spirit of God and John are saying, amen, that's happening, buddy. And you can see here, as in the temptation of Jesus, the devil meant it for harm, but God used it for good. And in the midst of that opposition to Jesus that people had, which was vicious and violent and ill, God was bringing redemption to the world. God works through the tragic circumstances that happened and brings good out of them. I can't think of any reason, in light of all this, Why our theme should not be, all glory, laud, and honor
1: be to thee, Redeemer King. Hallelujah. Amen.